So as we kind of get started, uh, continuing on through the verses in uh, Philippians chapter 3, and I try to remember to stand still, uh, you know, really the intent of this passage is, is Paul laying out the differences uh, pre-salvation, before he knew Christ, and sort of how he re-altered and re-centered his life after knowing Christ. So when we think about our own lives, right? We face a lot of things that we're trying to keep track of in our lives. I don't know if anyone else is, is like that same way. Um, I find that I sometimes need to be in two places at once. I find that I'm always trying to keep track of various reminders. Uh, we have all these tools to help us keep track of everything. But it can be quite challenging to remember all the things that you're supposed to do in your day, in your week, and keep up with them, right? You get the alerts on your, your phone, push messages. You have these to-do lists, whether on paper or electronic. You have these calendar invites, and there's these things you keep track of, but some things slip off, some things miss, uh, probably from week to week. If you nail your list every week, I need to talk to you, because I, I find it still pretty challenging to keep track of it all. But all that is really kind of transactional things, right? Things that we need to do and get done in our given week, and usually I'd say if you miss one of them, it's not the end of the world, you probably can push it another day, another week, maybe you keep pushing it, um, but it's just another item that you need to get done in your day. But what about all the relational connections that we have in our life? Have you tried to keep track of all of the relational touch points you need to have with people? Especially in our current season, it's, it's challenging to think about those responsibilities, whether it's remembering to call your mom at least once a month, right? Whether it's uh, remembering to swing by and catch up with a family member, have coffee with a colleague, do whatever it is in your life to keep these connections with people. Uh, they're much harder to pull off. You can do some of that with scheduling and calendars, but then there's always this alteration, right? You have to know, oh, something happened in somebody's life, and I need to catch up with them. I need to swing by. I need to give them a call, hit them a text, because something happened. There's a hard part. There's a difficult thing. There's this ebb and flow that comes with relationships that's not transactional. There's something that requires us to know what is needed to have a desire to know another individual and what their needs are and how to connect with them that requires something beyond a to-do list and calendar connections. It's this relationship that we're drawn into. And when we think about Jesus, there's similarly a relationship that we have with him. There's a requirement that we seek him, that we know him, that we spend time with him. And yet the mechanisms for doing that aren't easily captured on lists to do, calendar invites to remind yourself of. There is a bit of subjective ebb and flow of knowing Christ personally, knowing yourself, your needs, your need to connect with Jesus, your need to pray and speak with him, the fact that you've ignored him, the fact that you're short-tempered, the fact that you've missed an item of time with him. So what I hope today to do is as we look at these words from Paul in Philippians, we have a little bit of an understanding of that personal relationship that we're called to with Jesus and what that looks like. And really, if I boil it down to this, it's really the idea that there's power in knowing Jesus personally. Actually power in knowing him personally. Now, I know as I say that, it could sound a little infomercially, so hang with me here. I'm going to explain a little bit about what that means. But there is something connecting with us, with Jesus, as we know him and know him as more than just an idea or as a historical character, but as a living and active person, there's power for our lives that we can live with. So as we break through these verses together, if you look at verses 7 and 8, we'll talk about the progression of realizing Jesus personally, how Paul came to that understanding. 
And then in verses 9 through 11, we'll really talk about what that power is, what comes from knowing Jesus personally together. So as we, we dig in on this, I want to go ahead and look at our next uh, few verses here in verses 7 and 8. Read these verses. We're going to see from this the progression of realizing Jesus personally. So Paul writes, as we saw last week in verse 7 here at the start, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because this is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What we see here very quickly and just scanning your eyes over the slide, you get a view that there's a progression in place. Paul progresses in how he's reconsidering his life and taking count of it. He counts some things as loss. He counts everything as loss. He suffered the loss of all things, and he counts them as rubbish. As Paul relates his personal realization of finding the beauty and value of Jesus, this progression grows in intensity through these verses. He moves from kind of past tense to present tense. He uses the word loss as a noun, and then he begins to use it as a verb. He does little things to show us there's an increase in realization, a bit of progression that's happening. So you see this first uh, comment from verse 7 there up on the slide. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. So the very thing that Paul had thought were his benefits or his assets that helped him in his life, he started seeing them as they were actually a loss. He counted them this way as if they didn't matter because they were damaging and negatively impacting him when he saw them in light of Christ. He takes it a step further in the next statement, and he talks about everything as a loss. So he progresses further that all these things in his life are really the same way in compared to Christ. He kind of emphasizes this in our text uh, in the English Standard Version. We see the word indeed. He kind of takes five little particles and he puts them all together unnecessarily at the start of this verse. And the best way we can think about translating is just to go like indeed, like intensely. He's really sure now everything is a loss. And he puts that there to make a point of how he's rethinking everything in his life. The message version uh, translates this verse this way. Because of Christ, yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master. The next progression, he talks about suffering the loss of all things. So this is about substantial deprivation or a withdrawal of things. And he uses this passive verb as it's being done. This loss was done to him. So as Paul left Judaism, there was likely a loss as he moved to Christianity and following Christ. There was definitely a, a loss of reputation, perhaps rejection by some of his family, maybe even lost inheritance of property and things like that. There was some things that he would have had if he stayed exactly where he was. But as he followed Christ, those things changed. And he says he's suffered the loss of these items, and he sees that it's good. He continues it one, one more way as he goes down this progression, as he says that uh, he counts them all, or all these things that he's referenced previously, as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ. So here, Paul moves to such a point, these great things that he was after, the things that he followed, have actually become rubbish. And this word can, carries with it the idea of manure or dung. That's really what is envisioned by this idea of rubbish. So whether it's related to the excrements of dogs or maybe table scraps that dogs play with, he's, he's putting it on that par. So remember last week we talked about the dogs, the Philippians' opponents, 
that were there. They were so interested in becoming Jewish, and yet Paul called them dogs, that kind of Gentile term that was used. And now here he is saying, you know those things that you're after, those things that you care so much about? It's either doggy doo-doo or the scraps that you feed to dogs. That's actually how I consider those things in my life. So that's a pretty amazing progression he's gone in this period of time to change from something that he spent his whole life towards, that he was zealous for, that he desired so much. He's turned now in light of Christ to progress to the point of seeing really no value in those things at all. So it takes us to not just understanding this progression, but how does Paul come to that? How does he start to realize such a significant difference as he thinks through this? So I want to try to incorporate some of Paul's terminology of knowing Christ as he mentions here in verse 8, and then again uh, later in verse 10. This idea of knowing, in the Old Testament, it's often used as a way of signifying a close relationship with someone or something. Such a relationship that can even be called communion. So to know God was often seen as this paramount importance of being in a closer relationship with him. So when Paul speaks about knowing Christ, he's speaking about this personal relationship with him that's seen as really just this basic and fundamental aspect of the Christian life. It includes the experience of love from Christ as well as love towards Christ in return. So what does this realizing look like for all of us? You know, if you've found yourself uh, moving toward Christ, maybe uh, at some point in your, in your life you've had that moment where you've come to know Christ and you've desired him and you've went toward him, or maybe you're right now in that process. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I don't know a whole lot about Jesus and I don't know what he means for me yet personally, but I have some interest. I'm thinking about it. So what would it look like to realize that your life needs to change, that there are differences in it because of Christ? The best way I could think about uh, going at this is really thinking about kind of some stories from the Gospels that Jesus told. So one of them I want to tell from Matthew 13, and, and there's a story about a man seeking a pearl. So there was a guy who was a merchant or a uh, shopkeeper, and he probably sold like one thing, I don't know, fish or whatever he sold, sold one thing, and this is all he does. That's his whole life, his whole livelihood is selling this one item in the marketplace. And he decides, I want to go ahead and buy some pearls. So he begins his hunt around the markets, probably weeks on end, spends time looking for some great pearls that he can purchase. And he comes along and he finds a single pearl. And he says, that pearl is of such great, greatness, such beauty, that he stops his search. Instead of looking for, you know, a set of 16 or 24 pearls or something like that, he finds one pearl and he recognizes there's such beauty, there's such value in this one pearl, that he says, I need to sell everything I have in order to get this one pearl. This is what matters. That is part of the realization. Jesus calls that the pearl of great price. And he told this story emphasizing that that is what it is like to seek him and really understand his value and his kingdom. That in light of everything else, you're willing to let everything else pass away because you see what Jesus means. So as we hear that story about a pearl, that looks the same way in our lives. As we think of the value of Christ, maybe you've started to see his beauty or you've started to taste of his sweetness or you've started to understand the value that Jesus is to your life, then I want to encourage you, whatever you think might be holding you back, whatever seemingly other things you need to deal with, I tell you, please leave those and move toward Christ. Place your hands on him and believe that Jesus is of that value, that he is that wonderful. It is that realization that all Christians have had to have. It may have looked differently. It might have felt differently. Maybe these aren't your words that you would use. But that's what we do as we start to follow Christ. 
we recognize his value and turn all of our attention towards him. But Christians, as we go through that, I'm reminded of another passage from Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 19 in the words of Jesus. Because as we go through life, it can feel really hard. You've tasted the sweetness of Jesus. You've seen the value of him. But there might be times when you're wondering, is this really worth it? Maybe you've experienced loss. Maybe you've seen what it's cost you. Maybe you've felt the impact and the weight of following Jesus. If you've been there, you're, you're in good company. Uh, Peter had the same question in Matthew 19. He said to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. What will we have? What are we going to get? Jesus said to him, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you who have followed me also will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So part of Paul's realization of the value of Jesus was knowing that it's not, not what we suffer now that matters, but compare that to what Jesus promises us in the future restoration of relationships, inheritances, and eternal life. Following Jesus and then aligning our life to his really is the greater reward. So this is what that realization may feel like. So I encourage you, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more, but whether it's coming to Jesus for that first time and understanding the worth and the value that you need to give up in other parts of your life to apprehend that and understand what Jesus is offering, things that may be distracting you from knowing him, or whether it's valuing things greater so that as now you've known Christ, you feel that the cost is too high. I encourage you from these words to see from Paul's example how he re-centered his life in this re-evaluation. But I, I did talk about power, right? I talked something about power that we find in personally knowing Christ. And we see that in verses 9 through 11. So let's refresh ourselves on these words to remind it. Paul went on to say, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Part of Paul's point in driving home this personal relationship to the Philippian church and to us today was so that they might withstand opponents, those who are calling them back to a form of Jewish good works or keeping of the law, uh, an attachment to ethnicity. Instead, Paul wanted the Philippians and consequently us to understand that there's power in knowing Jesus personally, power to live our lives. And we can explain this power that we have from knowing Jesus in kind of three theological truths. So this is what we're going to spend our time on, really understanding what does it mean to be in relationship with God, specifically Jesus, and how does that empower us to live our life? The first one we see, the first theological truth, is union with Christ. You see this in the start of verse 9. What do we mean by union with Christ? Union with Christ is a phrase that summarizes several different relationships between the believer and Christ. Uh, through Christ uh, though every Christian, we receive uh, benefits of salvation in this life presently. We are in Christ, Christ is in us, we're like Christ, and we are with Christ. So there are aspects of the union with Christ that we as Christians, followers of Jesus, that we gain in this life. We start to receive benefits of salvation now. So as you think about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, that has power, meaning to us in our life right now. Here's one example. Think about sin in our life. When you are not following Christ, 
there's, there's literally almost nothing you can do but find ways to sin, either in your actions or in your motives. Sin perpetually comes out in your life. But as Christ starts to take root in your life, and you are united with Christ in his death, you now are no longer alive to sin. You now have death to the power of sin. What that means is, is you have that opportunity to obey your parents. You can turn away from pornography. You can avoid fighting with your spouse. All of these things are possible to us because of the power that comes from being united with Christ and his death. So by nature of our union with Christ, we can also labor, we can rejoice, live a godly life, and a myriad of other actions we're called to to do in the New Testament. And it's because of our union with Christ that we have access to the power to have him working in us and empower us to do things. So hopefully that makes sense as far as what union with Christ means, that in salvation we we are connected with him in a unique way. But where does the power really come in from union with Christ? Identity is one way in which we can find power for the union of Christ, and another is security. So identity and security are two powers that union with Christ brings from us. So we think about identity. Maybe strange to talk about that. What, what happens from identity? But in our lives, we spend a lot of time thinking about who we are, and based on who we are and what we think is important, we live out of that place. Because you identify yourself as a certain individual, this is what you do, this is what you like, this is where you are, you choose what often are your values, your likes, your dislikes, your habits. In our life here as Americans, Bostonians, we usually center ourselves around kind of three areas, performance, pedigree, and passions. So you think about performance, right? This relates to oftentimes our career, our employment. It's where we find our place. It's where we define what matters, It's our value system. It's our peer group. It's what tells us we're doing a good job and we're successful. When you look at that salary piece, when you see the title on the door, when you hear you've done a good job, when your coworkers applaud you, this is often where we find our significance and what matters to us. But what happens when we lose our job? What happens when we don't get the promotion? What happens when we can't get any busier and can't get all the work done that's placed on us? If we've put our identity and our performance there, we find that it doesn't hold up. We begin to question who we are. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to live our lives because we've banked it on our performance. The reality of union with Christ is is that we are accepted and counted as righteous in Christ because of his work. Our identity comes from knowing ourselves as sons and daughters of Christ and putting ourselves in that place. That it's nothing that we earn, nothing that we can act to make a difference. So when the promotion is passed over on us, or when we lose that job, we're able to still anchor ourselves in an identity that will endure, something that means something in our life. So that means you look differently as you seek that next employment. It looks differently as you trust God to provide for you. It looks differently in how you care for your colleagues as you were passed over for promotion and continue to labor for God. We can look at pedigree, another example. If you base it on family backgrounds, social connections, these things, none of them can hold the weight. You wish your family members could be there. Your children loved you as much as you need them to, that your parents cared for you and were wise enough, that your spouse really was there and knew you. You wish all of that was true, but we know family falls short. Friends fail us. Social connections are inadequate. We come to Christ and he can hold all of that weight. As we're united with Christ, we can commune with him 
And he can be what we need, the emotional support, the person who's always there, someone who truly listens, someone who loves and cares for us even when he knows exactly who we are. That holds up so much more than our background and connections when we turn to Christ. And lastly, just thinking around our passions, right? Whether our, meaning our sexual desires, our, our appetites in this direction, whether they accord with God's original design or not, they can never be the central fact about us. To make them this way would distort and twist the order of things. When we put sexual desires at the heart of our identity and then deny our sexual, to deny our sexual appetite and desires would be to deny our true selves, right? If I exist for this, if I have to find pleasure in sexual relationships and passions, and then if for whatever reason that doesn't play out the way that I need it to, the, the time, the way, the persons, any of these things, if it's not gone well, then I fall apart. And I have to do everything. I have to break laws, hurt people, do anything in order to achieve that desire that I have in my heart. Clearly, that cannot be the way that we can live our life and how we live out of that. We have to see ourselves as united to Christ. That, that causes us to recognize our position as united to Christ, that we can shun sinful practices and uniting ourselves with those who seek evil in the world and those who are not our married, uh, married partner. Additionally, we can live holy lives, whether in sexual frustration or in fulfillment. Either way, we know that Christ has called us to this life, that he will be with us. We're united to him to live through this. You see in the turn of phrase, he talks about being found in him. Paul is describing the union with Christ in that language of in him. That in him, in him language definitely is described as a union of Christ throughout Paul's letters. And here, the idea of being found really resonates with the loss that Paul talked about. He had all these losses that we were just talking about, but now his finding is in Christ. So all the things that he's lost, family connections, his career in many ways, all of these things have been lost to him, but he finds in Christ so much more. That's really the power from union with Christ. Let's move to our second theological truth. On the next slide, we see it as alien righteousness, alien righteousness. In the words there, the verse, it says, not having a righteousness of my own, and he contrasts that, and he talks about the righteousness from God. So when I say this, you may hear a little bit of sci-fi and the idea of alien uh, righteousness. Unfortunately, it kind of dates from the 16th century, Martin Luther, so it's not particularly related to any science fiction hopes. But the idea of alien righteousness is it's something outside of us. It's not yours. The idea from this verse is that there is a righteousness that you need as a follower of Christ, and really we all need it. But that righteousness is not anything that's inside of you. It's not something that you produce. It's not something that you can buy or earn or merit at all. It's a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. So it's entirely outside of you, and it's always outside of you. It's not like you suddenly start doing enough right things and you start kind of topping up your righteousness tank and then you just need a little bit of Christ's righteousness on top. It's not that, you know, you've got it on lease and after a while of doing good, you suddenly own the righteousness as your own. This is always alien righteousness. So when we think about being accepted before God, it's always on the basis of Christ's righteousness. It's never what you did. It's never your actions that caused God to see you, to have God extend his love toward you and accept you. It's always on the actions of Christ. And there's really power in recognizing this truth. This is probably one of those points that I think is really essential to change our life. As you think about what the power is in alien righteousness, 
It's that it produces within us acceptance and stability. Acceptance and stability. As Christians, right, we're, we're aware of our sin. We know that we're sinners. We continue to sin. And whether we're plagued by sins that we committed before we followed Christ or whether it's feeling the weight of the sins that we failed even this week, we really messed up. We boiled over. We failed in some way. There can be this tendency to think that your acceptance with God is based on how you acted the last 24 hours. The truth of this theology is the understanding that our basis for knowing God and being with him is on the basis of Christ. So think about that. That means no matter how bad you screwed up, God still loves you. No matter how much you've turned away from him, God still looks at you and his son. And so that gives us that opportunity to come back, to recognize, look, this is bad. I did the wrong thing. This is not right how I was living. Confess that and accept Christ's forgiveness for us because it was never your righteousness to begin with. It's not like you tarnished your good name before God and now how can you pray to him? How can you read his word? No, it's always been because of Christ. There's no time when it stopped to be. So turn, repent of where you've been and come back to Christ, recognizing it's his righteousness. And then the stability that comes from that. It's not on my fading obedience, my waving emotions from day to day, how I feel, am I following Christ today or not? No, it's still Christ's righteousness. It's what brings us to the Father so we can know him. And that's stable and true as he is. And you see the way that we get to this alien righteousness. It's outside of us, so it's not look introspectively and find it. It comes in faith. Faith is what brought Paul to change dramatically from his own works to trusting Christ. And we see here that faith is that mechanism, that effort, that task that brings us to the righteousness of God. God allowed faith to be the means where he provided what was needed for us, our righteousness. He means, <clears throat> when he talks about faith, that it's what unites us with Christ and all that God is for us in him. When God sees faith in Christ, he sees union with Christ. And when he sees union with Christ, he sees righteousness, of the righteousness of Christ as our righteousness. So faith connects us with Christ, who is our righteousness. And in that sense, faith is counted as righteousness. Faith sees and savors all that God is for us in Christ especially his righteousness. So we have one more theological truth that we come to, and that's the resurrection hope. You see this in verses 10 through 11. <clears throat> this final theological truth that, that Paul is really pointing toward when he says about knowing Christ, he gets to this point and it feels like a bit of a, a crescendo, a bit of a climb to get to this final point, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. So there's a sense in which this is pointed, directed, at Christ alone, that's who he's seeking to know, that personal knowledge of Christ. But then notice that he's also bringing to bear this idea that it's knowing, to, knowing him in two ways, through his sufferings and through the resurrection. These are the two ways of knowing him. Death is the means of accomplishing this. Um, obviously, resurrection presupposes death. It's a requirement to be resurrected. Death is involved. But then additionally, Death is, instead of seen as the end point, the be-all, end-all, there is a culmination of redemption in resurrection. That's the final point, the completion that takes place. So as we see the hope of resurrection coming out in power, it comes out in two ways. 
In verse 10, it talks about sharing in his suffering. So it really gives us power for suffering. That resurrection hope allows us to endure the mistreatments of life. So whether it's our brothers and sisters around the globe who are experiencing persecution toward Christ, for their trust in Christ, it is the hope of resurrection that empowers them to endure those difficult times. They know this life is not all that there is. There is hope in the future. And it can produce that same thing in us if we're ever called in that way. And then additionally, in verse 11, it points to the power of our own resurrection. As we look ahead, Paul says that he was hoping or may attain, you can see some questionable, uh, indefinite language here that he's using, that he might attain the resurrection for the dead. That is the humility of Paul, understanding that this is not all done yet. He had to finish his course. He had to finish his life to know, yes, I've continued on in following Christ, and then I'll receive that resurrection. Same thing for us. As we think about living our life, there's a sense in which we can approach it in boldness, knowing that this isn't all there is. It's not like you only have this time in life, so protect yourself no matter what. It's that if this life ends, we know what happens from there. You are with Christ. You will be raised. That gives us the ability to live boldly in our lives. So let's end then with just some quick two questions about concluding application. First question is, do you know him? So if you've been with us, maybe this is your first time logging in today online, or maybe you've been with us for some period of time, and you've been questioning, how how does Christ relate to you? What do you think of him? And the question today is really, do you know Jesus? Have you decided that there is something there, that there is beauty and value, and there's something you need to know more about? then I ask you, reach further to know Christ. Seek him in faith. Faith is not only just knowing, it's also believing that with an assent to follow him and putting your unreserved trust in Christ. And so the ask today is if you feel that pull, that desire to know Jesus, move towards him. Seek out someone who can speak to you further. Open your Bible, speak to him in prayer. Seek the Lord in faith if you don't already know him. And the second question for us Christians, are you living in light of the power of knowing Jesus? Has it been so long since you've prayed? Have you even spoken to Jesus in these days? I don't say that to shame anyone. I say that as a realization. If you've put your trust in Christ, he's a person. He's someone you can speak to and know. We know him from his word, and we can speak to him and commune with him in prayer. It's our thinking and our understanding that's so essential that we see him as part of our lives. It's a matter of you recognizing, you know what, you may have screwed up really badly, but your union with Christ, that alien righteousness that we've talked about, and your resurrection hope are what afford you that opportunity today to reach out to him, to speak to him again. There's nothing that you could have done, nothing you could have said, no way that you could have thought that would turn the father away from his son, and his son has his righteousness over you. So as you think about your relationship and your time with him today, where might that connect for you? You know, for me, a couple things, I can just talk about thinking about union with Christ and our identity and security. Sometimes that's a matter of driving me to the scriptures to open up Galatians and read it again, looking at Ephesians and seeing some of the truths in chapter one, or maybe it's reading the gospel of John and seeing some of the I am statements of who Jesus says he is. That's part of uniting yourself with Christ, understanding your thinking. You have to reset it to think, what do I need to know and how do I identify myself with Christ? Maybe it's a matter of thinking about your righteousness the way this works out for me is really self-talk, thinking first about what's true. When I really sin badly and I've really gotten angry or I've really turned 
uh, the wrong way, thought the wrong way towards someone else, acted the wrong way. Then as I come back, it's a matter of talking to myself, reminding myself, look, you really screwed up there. You did the wrong thing. But it's not like God has rejected you. It's not like you're on this all by yourself. Remember what you, this is, this is Christ's righteousness. It's not you, Tim, doing a great job and you had two weeks of great and now you've messed up this week. It's nothing like that. It's entirely on Christ. So talking ourselves through that, then preparing ourselves to speak to Christ again, knowing that he does accept you because of that. And then for resurrection hope, I mean, honestly, it comes out in a bit of boldness and being able to face situations. When you talk to someone who doesn't know Christ, you can catch that underlying fear that they have about not knowing what's ahead, about not knowing what will happen to them later. And so that's that opportunity that you can think in your own mind or maybe have a conversation with that person, reminding yourself, you're not in that same situation. You have nothing to fear. Sure, there's ramifications, implications of your death that'll be difficult for others, right? But for you, what are you looking at? Getting to go to Christ, getting to be with Christ. There is life. You know what's going to happen. It will continue. In that gives you the boldness to say, how must I serve Christ? How much I act? And in each of those things, you can have confidence to go forward. So there's this progression of realizing Jesus personally that gets you then to this power of knowing Jesus and the three theological truths of union with Christ, alien righteousness, and the resurrection of hope. And this truly gives us power in knowing Jesus personally. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time uh, we can spend together. God, I thank you for your word. I ask that you would use it in our lives. There's heavy truth here for us. God, that these things would excite us and move us toward knowing you, knowing you deeply. And God, these truths that are true of us, that you give us from your word, that you would help us to use them in our daily life, that you would remind us of them instead of all the other voices and ideas that are out there, that these things would mark us. And God, I pray that if there's anyone who's joining and hearing this, God, who doesn't know you, God, you would turn them. They would cause to see their eyes open and value you and see your beauty, that you'd be doing that work in their heart, God, and they would be moving toward you. In your name, amen.